you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 784. Now, I know that... uh, some people have complained, why, where are the podcasts? Uh, so just in case you missed the, the, the host we did at the end of last year, uh, we've dropped down for now to, to once a week. And, uh, and it's, <laughs> it might suck if you were listening three times a week, but I have gotten such a big piece of my life back that I can use for like hanging out with my fiance or working on stand up or, or just, or not feeling like my brain is turning into a, a wet pasta. But, uh, yeah, it might change at some point. And I will also tell you this. There will be weeks where there will be bonus episodes because, you know, we have some really great guests coming up. And obviously, sometimes people come on, they need stuff to go up at certain times. So it's not over, I promise. And as I am recording this today, this podcast is going up today, we are recording another Hostful episode tonight. So the Sister Wives and I will be back together. Uh, it's not going away. We love you. We love each other. We just, it's just scheduling. We're busy. We're grownups now. But uh, thank you for growing up with us. But uh, we will be putting them up uh, more uh, at midnight back this week. Uh, Talking Dead starting soon. And some other exciting announcements coming up in the near future. But thank you for sticking with us. I uh, really appreciate it. This episode is Noel Fielding, who is not only one of the most geniusly comedic people you could meet. I, I got to meet him a few years ago at um, Just for Last Montreal with Noel and Tim Minchin and a bunch of other great great comedians and uh, he's such a sweet guy too it's so it, it, it it's really inspiring to meet someone who is so genuinely sweet and delightful and lovely but also happens to be a, a comedic genius so I don't know if you're familiar with the Mighty Boosh but uh, Noel has done a ton of stuff and uh, he is touring the United States starting in March. Dates and tickets can be found at noelfielding.co.uk. And Fielding is F-I-E-L-D-I-N-G, just like it sounds. So thank you to Noel Fielding for being a wonderful guest uh, this, this episode of The Nerdist number 784. And I also just want to say a huge last thanks for anyone who came out to the Fun Comfortable special taping in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts on Friday, January 29th. It was amazing. It was such a... a wonderful experience uh, I'll talk about it on the hostful that we're gonna well hopefully we'll put up in the next week or two but uh, but I just want to thank you if you took the time to come out and, and support that uh, it's gonna air April 30th on Comedy Central and be on the various digital platforms so uh, so there you go thank you so much for that and here's the Nerdist Podcast number 784 with Noel Fielding now entering Nerdist.com
this is your rough, this is your lunch hour, right? Yes, but I, I'm used to doing. I was. If I'd have known, I'd have prepared you a small salad. Why is there not a salad or some type of a a, Arnold, a bread bowl of <laughs> onion soup? Crudite. <laughs> <say. laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> now, I'm really mad about that now. I didn't realize. You didn't no, me. You didn't tell me. Boy, if you're going to be doing a lot of stuff in America, you know, you have to bring. You you Dips. go to the grocery store and you just get a basic <laughs> celery and carrot platter. Ranch dressing is very popular here. It's like it's like mayonnaise with garlic in it or some herbs or something. I don't know what's in it, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I don't mind because. We just switched the podcast to once a week. It was three times a week for yeah. ages, which meant that we were recording five or six a week. So it was like almost every day. It was lunch hour and right after work. So this is <laughs> this is this is my one podcast. This is a fucking dream. This is great. <laughs> this is a breeze. I love it. This is fantastic. I'm so good. So you you you're here now. Are you staying here until the tour is not for a couple months? No, I just came to see some press and then go back home. Yeah, uh, do a bit of rehearsing, change some things. America, you know, a few things that are too English need to whip out <laughs> because there's some animation. Parliament, am I right? Yeah. Uh, Just alter a few things, some of the references, and then come back in March, the tenth. But I come. Uh, You're at the Wilbur, which is a great. F- have you performed at the Wilbur in Boston? No. It's great. The have Wilbur is great. Oh, we've literally only done. The Bowery, the Roxy, mm-hmm. and Jack Black's festival at Santa Oh, nice. Monica so, yeah, Pier. Festival Supreme. Yeah. Yeah, and there Which were dolphins. They moved, they moved Festival Supreme. Where's yeah, it was Supreme a bit this tight. Year? It was, it was tight. Like a, was it at the Ace Hotel or something? That they, so, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're doing some good spaces. The Gramercy is great in New York. Yeah, um, you were supposed to take me there. You didn't happen, did it? I thought you were trying to hide it from me. I thought it's a promoter's trick. Yeah, I'll take you there. Oh, I thought there was no time. Oh, <laughs> you're busy. No, I came here just to do this. I got to take this call. Where's your food? Did you bring food? <laughs> but I did see the Fonda, which is Fonda's nice. great. I think you're doing five shows with the Fonda. The Fonda looks like Tim Burton's bathroom or something. <laughs> That'd be fine. And then maybe... What else do we see? The, the Regency, that looks great in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, the Regency ballroom's really, really great. lots of odd rooms in the, the like old-fashioned theatres with carpets and yeah. grandiose settings. And Tom Waits played there. So I like that. It was quite exciting. Those are all, I've done all those rooms, and they're all really, they're all really great. But yeah. the Wilbur's especially cool because it's... Um, the room is... Um, it's shallow but tall. Oh, okay. So it, there's just a wall of people when you mm. come out. It's amazing for comedy. Oh, amazing. So you'll, I think you'll love it. They're the best it. ones where they're on top of you, right? Yeah. Oh, in England, there's lots where they're just miles away. Very thin, long, just dead miles away. It's better when they're like... But you've done the O2. Yeah. How's comedy in a venue that size? That was weird, yeah. Actually, Wembley Arena was a bit better. Wembley was like... Uh, Wembley was sort of the same amount of people. Maybe... No, maybe Wembley's 10,000 or something, is it? Wembley Arena? I think the O2 can go up to like 30. It's ridiculous. But the sound's really good in the O2. But it's such a long way away that when you do a joke... You think it hasn't worked, and then you go to do the next joke, and the <laughs> reaction to the last joke hits you in the face, and it's like you're sort of all jerky, going, "What's that?" It's like bad sex. You don't know what's going on because <laughs> you're trying to get the rhythm of it. Yeah, and you can't. Well, get you're already in. on to the next thing, and you I've, you're saying, I've, and you you're can't possibly wait for the laughter to come back, or the show would take four hours. It's ridiculous. So you have to sort of learn to kind of get the next joke in quick. 
I blame sound. I think if you could really, if you could perfect comedy at the speed of light, uh, <laughs> you would not have any problems in a, in a venue like that. You could, yeah. you could be, you could, your audience could be in other, you go on the moon and you could still get it to them pretty quickly. Well, the speed of darkness. <laughs> uh, and then that is a fucking album title. <laughs> no fielding the speed of darkness. Oh, come on. This is amazing. <laughs> Why is that not a thing? Why are you not writing thing. that down, Noel? I mean, this is—I mean, this is good. I know. I like to forget all my best lines, <laughs> and then go, "What was that thing I said that was really funny?" Oh, I can't remember. Okay, well, I guess it's gone now. <laughs> I guess it's gone. What's that thing that I said that was funnier than the stuff I write for the show. <laughs> can't remember. Damn. <laughs> what I like about this place is the Marx Brothers used to be here, right? Yeah, and Laurel and Hardy and Burns and Allen, and wow, it's it's pretty. And and our, our at midnight stage is the original I Love Lucy stage. Wow! So there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of history here. Yeah, but it feels you know because this is quite cold this room and they said yeah because it's made of stone and uh, obviously it was to keep it cool in the summer and I know that there was a room the Marx Brothers talked about where one of the big one of the big cheeses of the studio had a, an office that was freezing and they always used to find it freezing and so they locked. <laughs> They locked the door once because, I don't know, they were on protest about something. They didn't like the script or something. So they locked him out of his own office <laughs> and he had a fire and they and they basically broke his desk up and used it in the fire. And when he <laughs> eventually broke the door down, they were all naked around the fire toasting marshmallows now, and they smashed his desk to pieces. That is pretty punk rock. I don't know <laughs> if you... <laughs> It could have been this very room because it it's cold have, in here. It, 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 this room does feel like there were naked Marx Brothers in here. I often say <laughs> the aura of naked Marx. I can Marx. smell Harpo and marshmallows. Does that make sense to anybody? Or am I just – does that not make sense to anybody? That is such a strange – That what a weird time where you could do that. Where you could do shit like that. And you'd still – they'd still use you again and again. Yeah. I guess they were very obscenely popular. I read a book about them and it was impossible to get them all in the same room. Like they were always just disappearing. I mean, no matter how many cars you sent for them, they were never there. One of them was always gambling. One was chasing women. They were never there at the same time. Well, you also, I mean, that was really the dawn of kind of true worldwide fame. Yeah. And I, and I, think, I always think it's funny that, that actors were always, I think in the early days, most, most performers were sort of looked down upon as like, oh, yeah. well, they're... Beneath, but it's like, but that was the birth of worldwide fame. I, know, I mean, yeah. there there won't ever be another time like that. No, again. those those people are almost like gods, aren't they? The black yeah. and white era. Those people, you just think of them and think, wow, it's quite fantastical to think of those people. But it's changed a lot. Celebrity now is kind of a much cheaper sort of weird real life colors. I just think yeah. of people like the Marx Brothers and Bogart, and I think of that kind of black and white, grainy right. kind of slightly. Uh, it's just so nostalgic and so sort of um, powerful. And then now when I think of celebrity, I think of kind of horrible magazines and <laughs> George Clooney's leather face. <laughs> well, I Not think that I have anything against George Clooney. I love George Clooney, but yeah, I just sort of think of the intrusive pictures of people in blurry photographs. <laughs> well, it is, it is, it is a kind of obsessive 
It is such an obsessive culture. Is it? Is it? I assume it's just as bad in England as it is here. Yeah, people in bad bathing costumes at the beach, not knowing they're being photographed. I mean, that's not the way you want to see Stan and Laurel, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Stan and Laurel and Oliver Hardy. You don't want to see them at the beach, <laughs> not knowing they're being photographed. I don't know in, if bad, there, in bad pants. That's I don't not. know if there's like there's just probably not like an Us magazine uh, <laughs> Oliver Hardy beach body summer workout <laughs> that you can do. Uh, sit around for a count of ten. <laughs> like I don't know why. I don't know what happened with like at some point, and yeah. maybe it was the maybe it was. I, I assume it was just the explosion of media outlets yeah. that, that needed more programming. I mean, when I was growing up, I knew. I remember there being the Inquirer and yeah. People Magazine and all that stuff. But I guess it did happen in a way, but not like. No. I feel like celebrities used there, to be able to get away with a lot of stuff. Well, there was that book, uh, Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Angle, sure, right. where he sort of did an expose on lots of mm, stories, Hollywood gossip stories. Yeah. But they weren't even really pictures of those people doing those things. They were just pictures of the rooms that those things happened in yeah. or pictures of science. You know, they didn't really have any proof those people kind of got away with murder i mean amazing. we yeah we, we had there was a very popular show here in the 50s called uh, perry mason he was yeah. a lawyer and i think raymond burr basically had a secret gay island <laughs> and now now <laughs> is he ironside as well he was ironside as well wow. and now you know perry mason and ironside yeah perry He's mason and ironside and and so and he now you as no as gay as, island i think he had a secret gay island what like, you mean the island itself was gay <laughs> It had certain gay properties. No, it was a, a bisexual village. A- <laughs> wow, there were people on it that were gay. Which side of the island are you? <laughs> I'm sorry, dividing up the. He, but but I think he just you know he was able to keep that part of his life private. Yeah. But you as Noel Fielding, if you're in a Starbucks and you're like, can you guys hurry up with my latte? Noel Fielding throws tantrum <laughs> at Starbucks. You know, like there's no way to... Noel Fielding hides out on Bisexual Island. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hiding in quotes. You know, like you told everyone. You tweeted you were being there. I don't know. If was... This island's really great. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Curious Island. I just don't know if... Uh... <laughs> That's your next Big Brother series right there. Yeah. Bring Bye, Curious Island. Just throw, a bunch, curious of, island. Just throw a bunch of like metrosexual dudes over there see what happens just see what happens see what percolates it's gonna be amazing and then like a couple of hardcore ballers just like a couple of like rugby dudes just see just see what just happens see what happen. i think it'll be good yeah it'll be good for everyone involved when i'm did, up for that you when did you start doing television was it late 90s early early wow. 2000s i know boosh i mean i obviously i know boosh and i know that, that dates back. Yeah, well, I'd done a few little bit of stand-up on television on Channel 4 on a show called Gas a little bit earlier, late 90s probably, um, which was good because I only used to do five minutes a week and I, they used to let me do five minutes every week and i come on and do like one joke because my jokes are quite long. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd do like one story and then because I did it every week, people got familiar with that kind of and they go, where's that guy who does like really one long story? And uh, it worked quite well for me. But the proper first TV show we did was The Boosh, yeah, which I guess was around. 2003 I don't even know I'm such an idiot um, yeah and then we did we did two in a row and then we had a break did a big tour then we did another one then we did another big tour and then we had our own festival then we wrote a book and then we came over here wow and that was it sort of all just happened the only thing we really didn't do was do a film or do a TV show here which we did get offered a TV show here by IFC and it's kind of bad timing for us so uh, we didn't do it, unfortunately, which slightly I still regret. 
Yeah. But we you... sort of came here at the height of the boost and when it was doing well and Robin Williams came to see us in the Roxy and Jack Black hung out with us and Mike Myers and all these we sort of met all the cool people you know and they were all getting oh you should do something you know you should do something and uh, unfortunately we just been on a 100 date tour Julian was about to have kids it was all the kind of wrong timing really we needed a bit of a break so we didn't do it but um in some ways I wish we had it done not spent that year on my by Curious Island, <laughs> looking longingly out at the sea, <laughs> going, waiting for the IFC well, I think, ship to arrive. Well, just because of the way things work now, it's, it, almost, it almost doesn't matter if you do something here or there. It's no. like everyone has access to it. Because the internet, yeah. yeah they're going to see it anyway. You can always do a movie, too, if you, want, if you felt like it. Yeah, it's amazing that, isn't it? I do love that. It's kind of, that didn't exist when I first started doing comedy. It's sort of technology thing's insane everything's just the changes that i've seen from comedy are amazing how you can just type something in now and go oh all right what's this and then you know nine times out of ten it's on the internet geoblocked proxy server <laughs> you can get around stuff because there are there are some things that you know you just, there's some english programming that you might need to jump on a proxy server and tell yeah. it you're located in england so I you know. can see i don't know why they bother doing that they should just let everyone see it it's it, it's it's the country I believe it's the country of the. Uh, I think it might be the country of origin that doesn't want it to get out. Right? Is that right? No, maybe it's the country coming. I think it's the country that it's coming into. Maybe is blocking it. Wow. I don't know. It, it all has to do with licensing fees and. Dumb, I, bl- I blame Donald Trump. I blame. Let's let's fucking blame him <laughs> for everything. Let's blame him. I'm just uh, just reading the story about how Parliament was uh, practically trying to one up each other with insults about Donald Trump and debating whether or not to ban him from the fucking country. Wow. <laughs> it's like and people here still don't seem to care, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that's what who I tells said. it like it is." That's what I said. I was really expecting, especially in New York, I was expecting a hostile reaction. I'd go, oh, what's Donald Trump? Yeah, what's happening there? People were like, yeah, he's doing really well. I was like, oh, really? Is that man. it? I thought you'd be, you know, going, oh my God, what is that? What's happening? <laughs> well, I think some of us are, yeah. but but it, but it is. A lot of it, I think, is also the culture of celebrity. And I also believe yeah. it's just such a scary time. It is a scary that time. That I think people feel like. They need something. something extreme and crazy yeah. because it's crazy time. He's capitalizing on a lot of things, extreme things that are happening, I guess. And people are upset and he's giving them a weird outlet, a way of sort of, I don't know, it's strange. I, I think people in England are quite fascinated. Or well, they imagine, as I did, that when they come over here, people are going, oh, that, that's just a joke. Don't worry about that. That'll be gone soon. <laughs> but, it's a joke the way an internet video that something really awful yeah. gets a billion views. Yeah. He's basically... Like a woman putting a cat in a wheelie bin or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's a woman putting a cat in a wheelie bin <laughs> <laughs> and it going horribly wrong. And then people just... Then the it just mask, gets a billion the views. The mask will slip and there'll yeah. be a woman putting a cat in a wheelie bin. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe he's a series of cats stacked on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> on one giant wheelie bin yeah, with on a some, bi-curious with island. With some fruit roll-up <laughs> over to, to cover their faces. Uh, 
and his hair is just the tip of the cat. The top cat's a tabby, of course, and it's just it's just it's just billowing out over the fruit roll up. It's a hell of a look. It's almost like he's in Greece. It's sort of a rockabilly. The show too. Greece. He's in the movie. It's show. like orange smoke. I love it. I don't know what's happening here. It's no. it's really horrifying, but I I guess it's I guess it's weird and scary everywhere right now. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's weird. I think it, it's funny. It's weird to see him on the television here because it, it gives him quite a lot of uh, gravitas. You know, it's always on the news every night, and it's like Donald Trump's done this, Donald Trump's done this, and it's like, wow, this is getting a lot of exposure, a lot of coverage, and becoming a real thing. Less than a joke. Yeah, I mean, it, I think we've become such a headline culture in the sense that people there's he's there's, great for sound bites. Right? It's great for sound bites. I mean, funny, like hilarious for sound bites. Yeah, good. Costume. But they're attention getting. Mm. But people only really mostly get their news from headlines. Yeah, and he's just saying a lot of. It's quite hard to understand what's going on here with the news. You have to watch. John Oliver or, you know, oh, yeah. Stuart or Colbert or someone to understand what's actually happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just went by the headlines. No. You wouldn't know what was going on. And when you, when you, you know, when you watch him, he, it's, it's so funny. He doesn't really say anything. He just, it's just like, my, he, Donald Trump proposes to ban all Muslims from running the country until we figure this out. And we're like, <laughs> until, we fig- until we figure this out. Yeah. Like, what? What does that mean? You know, make America. What does make America great again? This doesn't uh, mean anything. My favorite thing is when he said, "We need to uh, contact Bill Gates and turn the internet off." <laughs> yeah, just shut it off in places. We could just turn it off. Uh, Bill Gates has got a button in his house. Yeah, <laughs> he pushes it's on, it's off like the heat. Bill Gates, who's just gone on to philanthropy <laughs> right now and doesn't really. I like how Donald Trump and figures that Bill Gates is the one that can help us with that. You could just shut the internet off. You could just shut it off for, a, for you know. Mm, I don't like those. Yeah. I don't like those uh, puppy pictures over there. I'm just going to shut off that whole section over there. And then the terrorists will just shut off the terrorists. And then when the terrorists go to their computers to do their terror the next day, they're going to be like, what has happened? Oh, no. Trump. They're like, oh, damn you, Bill everything. Gates. Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates and Donald Trump will high five on a... <laughs> on a space yacht, kind of fucking know what they're doing. It's just that people just want to hear that. They want to hear the easiest solutions to shit. They don't really yeah. want to see what it takes to try to fix things. It's no. like because the real way to change and growth and diplomacy is is boring and unsexy. You just you have to spend time maintaining those relationships, and you can't just. Is it because as well? Often in politics, especially American politics, I find that. It flips from one thing to the other so if you have someone like obama you have to kind of have next you have to have someone completely opposite and then you go back so you just go backs and forwards going that was too liberal that was too right wing that yeah. was crazy this is not you know i don't know yeah that's a little bit of that that does seem to be especially if you've had eight years of a certain type of presidency yeah. then and it's not like the president really has that much power no and also i think if some if you gave people the option they'd probably like another eight years of obama right i you know i honestly i honestly if don't say can we have him for the next 20 years people would go yeah great that's fine <laughs> we don't need to do this stuff anymore let's just make obama let's give it to him until he wants to go well i don't think like letterman or something i, I don't know <laughs> he'll, be <laughs> <laughs> he'll be 90 he'll be 90 oh my god let him be an amazing president let him be an amazing president mm. <laughs> why do people like that never get the job 
Why would they want it? I think wanting that job is weird. Like, yeah, why would you, you have, want? You have to why be would a... you want? I mean, you probably don't look at the royal family and go, "I think it'd be great to be in the royal family." You probably just go, <laughs> "Oh, what a weird existence." I know, right? But I guess, uh, I guess, yeah, you have to be a kind of certain kind of person to want to be the president. You have to have a big ego, I guess, in a way. And Trump's got. That's what he's got. He's got the ego for it. Yeah, he's all, he doesn't believe that that couldn't happen. It's all ego, no, no substance. It's just all ego. <laughs> it's just all. Yeah, we're just gonna. I'm just gonna find the terrorist families and make them pay. <laughs> yeah. How are you gonna do that? You shut the fuck up. Okay. Uh, all right. So I guess that was my fault then for asking a question. You ask a question like that again. I'm calling Bill Gates. <laughs> he's gonna we're, shut up your internet. We're gonna turn your internet oh, no. off. <laughs> okay, I don't want that. I like the internet. Yeah, I don't know, man. I. I, I always wonder, because I know your background was, you went to art school. Yeah. So do you sort of see everything as like... Visually, yeah. You see everything visually, but what's the balance between... I guess most people do. <laughs> <laughs> I see everything in words. Not, not, not people with synesthesia. They, no. they see colors. <laughs> colors. They hear smells. Yeah. Uh, so with the exception of them. I mean, what's your balance between, you know, sort of like arts, anarchy, being kind of like indie cred versus yeah oh i'm playing the o2 or i'm popular like how do you balance do you have that struggle at all mm, i don't think we did originally me and julian just did what we wanted and somehow it worked i don't think we questioned it the arrogance of you we just went <laughs> this is great we're gonna have a a, a merman with a mangina this is gonna work a I, crack I, fox god how does that just went yeah and then we were at the o2 and julian's like it's pretty weird that we're playing the o2 i mean you know, our show's about a funky merman like Rick James with a mangina. And I was like, yeah, we didn't really compromise. <laughs> There's been an admin error. How do we get to play the, in, the, the, the O2? But I think maybe we just were quite bold. And we just, um, Julian was in bands and stuff and was very obsessed with music. And I was uh, into the look and the costumes and the makeup of stuff. So, And he was into films. He liked story. And I was quite into animation and stuff. So I think once we put all of our skills together... We were never going to just do a sort of sitcom. We were never going to do a straight stand-up show. But we both had done stand-up, so we were quite good live. So we were just trying to put everything that we liked into one show, like animation and music and story and, uh, you know, all those crazy things in one show. We didn't think that that would... We thought that would be a good thing, a better thing than most shows, because most shows are kind of one... No, you know, or not all most shows. There's some brilliant shows, but a lot of shows are just follow the same sort of format. Because I guess when something's successful, then TV producers go, quick, let's make something like that. And then we came along and they went, we don't know what this is. <laughs> what is this? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, all right, just do that. And then when it was quite popular, I think they just went, yeah, just keep doing it. But they had no idea what it was we yeah. were doing. Um, so we didn't really worry about it, really. I like stand-up, though, but, I, you know, when there are people that are really good at it, I don't mind watching two hours of Richard Pryor, you know, or right. something. But I, I myself like to do a bit of stand-up, but then I always get itchy feet, and I want to sort of maybe visualise some of the ideas. So have some animation or, you know, some characters on stage. Like the moon will be in the show, and the dark side of the moon is in the show, which is the moon's alter ego, like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And then there's an animation, but I thought, let's make it interactive, otherwise it's boring for the audience. It's like watching a TV show, so... 
uh, at one point I go inside the animation. It's like a claymation thing. And I become like a character, an animated character. And then at one point we take the audience into the animated screen and they become a part of the story and they become like a claymation character. So we take a really, you know, just a dude. We actually ask for someone called Steve and then it's usually some guy who's only there because his girlfriend likes me. He doesn't even want to be there anyway. And then he's like, oh, I've now got to wear an outfit and go in behind the screen and come out as this claymation character. And he's like, I'll do it, but I hate you. And um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's yeah I came with her to this. She's coming to me to see The Offspring. <laughs> this is our trade-off. She's in a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in a way, yeah, so there's, and there's other characters. In my show, I get kidnapped in the interval, and then I come out as a New York cop and try and interrogate the audience looking for me. So, I mean, they know it's me, but it's sort of quite fun to pretend to be someone else looking for me. It's quite a conceptual show. <laughs> well, it's great. I mean, it sounds like a... I mean, it sounds there's music like, in it and stuff as well. It's, a, so. it's an experience. Like, you've, you've yeah. created this sort of... This whole experience that covers yeah. all the different things that you like. Well, I kind of like the idea that when you get a good idea, I had an idea that in my show, my maybe I sort of do a really serious bit where I try to do a serious bit of comedy, and I say my wife. I'm not married, but I talk about my wife sort of um, <laughs> having an affair with a triangle, right? And I sort of do this whole thing, and I try and tell it really seriously, but it's so whimsical and ridiculous that when they laugh, I sort of get annoyed with the audience. I'm like, this is not a joke. And then, but I thought I kind of want to see someone in a triangle costume and my wife and them coming on and us having a big fight, you know? Because I sort of think the idea of someone trying to be quite high status when they're dressed as a red triangle is not—it's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> so we sort of have an argument. And the triangle's going, you're not good enough for a pal. She likes me. And I'm like, he's dressed as a triangle. It's preposterous. But some things you just want to see. And so I never try and limit myself with just stand-up. Because I think stand-up's fantastic because you can paint all these images and it's brilliant. And people go with you and it's instant. They'll just go with you wherever you want. But then I think what's nice is to have a callback and actually visualise. Yeah. So you get both, really. You get their own imagined version of what you're saying. And then later on you get another version which is you know happening before their eyes which i think is cool and uh, and a bit of story i think if you do more than an hour you have to start bringing story in otherwise people it becomes too cabaret you know so right. the second half is really trying to get me back into the show and then various characters sort of interrogate the audience and they get someone from the audience to come and rescue me and then at the end there's a big celebration because i get rescued by a member of the audience and we make him the hero for the day you know so it's a sort of um it's quite feel good. Show. This sounds like one of the most fun shows I've ever. I mean, like it's it's like it's almost like going to a theme park. It's a children's show for adults. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, because you, I mean, honestly, having been you know being on one side of it, you go, well, it'd be really great just to roll into a show and just get on stage and tell jokes and yeah. everything. But you know, there's so many moving parts with yeah. your show. Does that ever weigh you down, or is that yeah. is that exciting? You have to be dedicated to the notion of doing this. Like uh, I read a book about, um, and they were who is it? Someone was talking about the band, the Tubes, the punk band. Love the Tubes, yeah, and how they uh, the, how Fee would spend all of the money on making a really good show visually and yeah. stuff so they would never make any money and the band were really pissed off because they never made any money but he was like but the show's great and but people it's a remember band yeah and people will remember these shows for the rest of their lives and that was kind of what me and Julian were thinking let's put on a spectacle let's have a revolving stage and a band and let's have back projection and visuals and all this stuff you know and I kind of always think then when people come if you do a good show and it's not what they expected 
they'll always come back, you know, and they'll always talk about it. They'll go, oh, my God, I saw you, you know, five years ago. You did this and you did that. Rather than stand-up's brilliant, but it kind of, there's a lot of stand-up. And unless you're Pryor or Steve Martin, it's hard to be, you know, when they, when it's really good, it's I think it's the best thing in the world. But yeah. I think, you know, I think maybe there's various ways to skin a cat. And I think if you've got a theatre, then, you know, use some theatre techniques, it, you know. There's a great amp I just, things up. There was I just saw a video on. Um, I follow this subreddit called Obscure Media, and it basically yeah. people just post exactly that obscure media. And someone just posted Steve Martin on the Smothers Brothers show in 1968. <laughs> wow, when he was basically just a writer for the show, he had black hair, <laughs> and uh, wow. he did this very absurdist yeah. magic act, and you can see the seeds of what he would become. The sort of became. the meta making fun of cabaret performers, and yeah. He does this like four minute. <laughs> it's sort of like it's anti magic. I don't know. It's, I don't know how to describe it. And the audience is sort of on board with it, but yeah. it's so interesting watching him yes. start to discover that kind of absurdist comedy character. Yeah. And I loved Steve Martin. I mean, I loved when I first saw him. I don't think I really. I was too young. I didn't realize he was kind of sending up those kind of cabaret performers. That his whole thing was. Taking, making fun of showbiz, really, of yeah. those characters. Um, but there was something quite childlike about him. I think he's amazing. Like Kaufman had that, that kind of weird, as dada as it was, or as surreal as it was, or how weird, it, you know, even when it was kind of, he was completely tricking the audience. There was something quite childlike about Kaufman's f- fun, his, his sense of fun at doing that. It was like a twinkle. So yeah. it wasn't sort of like a weird thing where he's going, oh, I'm cleverer than you. You don't even know what you're doing. It was like there was a sort of childlike wonder about it. So it made you, it was quite contagious or something. I think there was something quite charming about Kaufman. It was like, who's let this guy in? Why has he got a turban on and he's got pants? He's wearing a, last time I saw a Calvin clip, he had a massive turban on and a nappy and he was doing a country and western song. <laughs> then he did some sword swallowing and it was literally like, you, what is happening? <laughs> I mean, and you could, it was on, I think it was Letterman, but Letterman was really young and Letterman was just sitting there laughing his ass off, just thinking, how have I let this on my show? But there was something sort of so brilliant about it how brave it was and how brilliantly brave Letterman was for putting it on his show and endorsing it and supporting it so people would take it seriously, you know? Because yeah. it would be quite easy to go, no, this, there's no way I'm booking Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> He's just got a turban on and a nappy on. Well, I feel like that's a hard... I feel like that's, a, that's also kind of a difficult comedy path because when people yeah. first see you, they go, wow, this is so yeah. unique and different. And then, then it becomes a question is how do you stay a, a step yeah. ahead of the audience before yeah. like the third time they see you they go yeah i get he's gonna do something weird like yeah how do, you, how do you how do you maintain that i know and i think maybe when even when kaufman died people thought it was a trick didn't they right i think quite... still for a long time they yeah. did i'm sure there are some people out there who still think oh he's yeah. alive somewhere that's a long that would be a long joke it's right? a really long joke <laughs> If he was still alive, he's really. It would be amazing. I mean, it would be. He suddenly went, hey! Hey! Hey, guys. But just like picked up, you know, just like him and Jerry Lawler, just like pick it right back up where they were before. I know, it'd be be an amazing. It'd be an amazing. Oh, that would make my universe. It'd be so cool. I'm not even. I'm not. I'm. I feel bad that I don't even have an infinitesimal percentage of that much commitment. No, I would tell committed. people I was right. dead for like an hour and be like, I was, I didn't mean that. I, like I would never really, be able to. 
<laughs> I wouldn't even be able to go for a day of that. <laughs> I know, that's so committed. But that's a special thing, though. That's yeah. a, a very unique quality of him, and you can't fake that. You just kind of no. have to be that way. I think so. It's quite, it's quite unique and quite clever, really. I guess it's sort of paved the way for a lot of other stuff as well. I read a book about Kaufman, and someone, I think it might have been, uh, who's the guy in, who does stuff with Mike Myers, you know, the blonde guy. What? Dana Carvey? Yeah, I think, I think there was a quote in there saying, all roads lead back to Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought, wow, that's kind of profound and quite animate, and actually in some ways quite true. Well, also, well, speaking of that, I mean, losing Bowie was an insane, yeah. I mean, it. I was more affected than I realized I would be. Yeah. Even uh, though I was a fan he was someone like Robin Williams where you go, well, they yeah. can't die. They're, no. they're immortal. Like they're, just, they're always going to be there. They're not even alive, so they can't die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not real people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. It's been a bad year, actually, for losing people, or a bad couple of years. I feel, yeah, it was in England, I knew that people would be devastated, you know. Um, but I was here when it happened, and I was so shocked at how powerful the reaction was. I mean, I knew, because he's such a genius, but he just everywhere you went, that's all everyone was talking about. That's all everyone was playing Bowie everywhere, and it was, it was kind of insane. I don't think I've seen a reaction like that maybe since, like, John Lennon or someone. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, and my mum was crying in the bath, and I was like, what's happened? Phone my dad went, Mum's crying in the bath. He went, Yeah, John Lennon died. And I was like, Who's that? <laughs> the Beatles. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like really young, like six or so, I don't know, eight or something. Um, but yeah, Bowie, it was big because I think maybe there won't be anyone like him again. So, and everyone knows that. Such a one off and such a innovator that. Yeah, and he, he, oh, he managed to stay ahead of culture yeah the entire time there wasn't really brave as well because if he was doing something very successful and then he moved on people didn't if people didn't like it he didn't care yeah that's the hard bit because in retrospect you go wow look at his back catalog he did this he did this he did this but every time he moved on and went i'm not doing ziggy stardust anymore people would literally go what you're mad (laughs) like there's a bit actually they showed ziggy stardust the other night in hammers i think it's hammersmith or brixton 1973 and he says this is our there's a bit at the end where he goes this is our last uh, show doing ziggy Stardust," and the audience are literally going no (laughs) self-harming and stuff do you know what i mean they literally they can't their heads are exploding and he just says it there and then we're not doing this anymore and you go, wow, this is the height of that madness. And he just goes, yeah, I'm doing something new. There's something amazing about it. Well, it is because it's the difference between chasing a trend and... Setting and I, a trend. And setting a trend. But I think in his mind, I don't even know... I if mean, he thought he was setting a trend. I don't know if he thought he was setting a trend. And I think it's sort of like exactly what you said when you're designing the show. It's like, well, you just do it because it's fun or you and do it, it because you... it feels like the right thing to like do. It feels like the right thing to do. And that's all you can ever do. And if people like yeah. that, great. And if they don't... When you accept that and you relax with that, it often works out for you. It's sort of weird. If you go, well, this is what I do and I can't really change that. And <laughs> I've just got to let, you know, see what happens. And... You can't really alter people's reaction to what you make. So once you're comfortable with that, often, weirdly enough, it goes better. It's when you're trying to control people's reactions because you've worked really hard on something that it seemingly goes against you. Well, I think there's a certain... Well, I we've think, just got really deep. Well, it is. <laughs> I, think there's a certain, I, think, I think there's a certain biological function, and I think it comes down to if... People sense desperation. Yes, I think there's a there's a fundamental biological 
process that happens where they go, yeah. oh, that thing, that entity needs me, so it must not be strong <laughs> enough, so I don't want to help it propagate its genes because it's weak. You know Kill what I mean? it! Destroy yeah, it! Honestly, I think, that, I think desperation reads as weakness, which like reads lions. as not attractive. Yeah, exactly, because I go, well, it's weak. It, it's yeah. begging for us to look at True. help it, as opposed to the one that just sort of forges ahead and go, and oh, he must be on And something. it's innate. It's instant because my brother is in my show who played Naboo in uh, the Boosh. Michael? The, yeah, Naboo the Enigma, and he's in luxury. And I always try and use my brother because he really makes me laugh. And he doesn't care. He, has, he does stuff with me, but he has another job, like a normal job that he does, that he likes as much as performing with me. He doesn't want to be famous. Doesn't really particularly care that much about the money. He's like, when we're on tour and we're playing Australia and we're selling out massive venues and it's already exciting, he'll be going, Yeah, quite looking forward to getting back to work. Like, he literally. <laughs> what does he do? And then he's like, He does like a sort of, um, he's like a, he works for a company where they put on um, uh, services for sort of like big events, like sort of royal events mm-hmm. or, you know, events in London. And he'll be sort of managing a team who are sort of serving coffee or serving dinner or you know looking after people it's like an events manager type guy and he um but he loves it he loves it and he doesn't and also people come up to him the whole time and go are you naboo and he's like yeah and he doesn't have any ego he's not like oh god i've just been you know i'm doing a normal job like i would be going i can't be working in a coffee shop people would go yeah wow what's happened to you but he doesn't have that kind of ego which is sort of genius so people go can i get a photo and he's like yeah yeah and then he gets back on with working but like when he comes out on stage in my show he plays my wife and he plays <laughs> which is pretty funny and he ends up looking like Yolandi out of Deantwood but when he looks like <laughs> which is amazing and he comes out and because he doesn't care and he just uh, he's doing it because he likes doing it and he doesn't he has no aspirations to be like a great actor or you know to further his career as a sort of as um, a sort of truth to it that the audience pick up on immediately and he just comes out and goes all right really deadpan and the roof they it blows the roof off every time and like i work for 40 minutes on stage getting the audience <laughs> facing the right way doing every move in the book that i can do trying to be the charm personified and eventually get them there my brother just walks on all right <laughs> and the roof just is disintegrated and I just go he couldn't like do Harpo. that if you didn't set the table for him to he's do like that he's like Harpo I mean I don't know it's insane but I love it I love him for that but yeah he's quite a unique person that is inspiring though it's an inspiring yeah. just, just the idea of because the audience can sense it's like you say they can sense that he's doing it and that it has no ego there or something and that he's not uh, there's no ill intentions. There's no, all right, if I do this and I can get that show, and I, you know, he's just going, I don't care <laughs> whether the audience are even there. I think Mike would do it if there were three people in the audience. It would make no difference to him. He doesn't have that in him. He's amazing. It's sort of hard to not. I think he might be Jesus. He could very well be. <laughs> I think if Jesus came back, he'd be an event planner. <laughs> I think so. Well, you rat a wine? No problem. You know? <laughs> You need fish? Like, he'd be, you know, he'd be, oh, all of a sudden there's a barrel of fish. Oh, this guy's great. But he sort of does events where the royal family crop up. And like, I think the queen asked him for a drink behind the bar. And it was quite early. He was laughing because she wanted a gin and tonic or something. And uh, she's the queen. She can do whatever she likes. And, uh, you know, again, he just sort of said, yeah, I served the queen the other day. 
she wanted a gin and tonic. We had a chat, and I'm like, it's, he doesn't care. It's like, he doesn't say it to name drop. He just says it like, you know, oh yeah, a guy came in the other day, ordered a cup. <laughs> yeah, the queen came in. She wanted a gin and tonic. Yeah, we had a quite a nice chat. She was all right actually. I'm like, wow. Who are you? How do you do? Who are you? I'd be getting a selfie with the queen. <laughs> I'm thinking oh, we've got to be able to spin this. <laughs> There's oh. a way of getting more tickets out of this, God. right? I'd, I'd make a terrible joke that wouldn't land. I'd be like, "Can I see your ID?" Like it would be something really stupid, and it wouldn't land. And then, and then I would always have that moment of failure. You know, I don't know how old are you? Should you be in here? Like, I just, I don't know. It would see it in the Queen's eyes. Just just be like, gone, banned with Trump. This is never allowed in Great Britain again. <laughs> It'd be tragic. It'd be tragic. It'd be brilliant, though. You should film that. It'd be I Kaufman. <laughs> Kaufman would film that and put that out and go, this is me tanking in front of the Queen. How do you... I've always wanted to know as many times... Because I'm sure... I know people ask... I'm sure people ask you about this all the time, but the old Greg sketch is ten and a half minutes long. Yeah. How do you write that? I'm so fascinated by every turn that sketch makes and then it just ends and i'm like how did you how did you how did you take that journey like how did that when we wrote oh greg we were quite it's weird because i was talking about this the other day someone about morphic resonance about how it was the same year that Chappelle did that rick james thing yeah and we were kind of obsessed with rick james and i think Chappelle might be the same age as me i think he's 42 right so he's the same age and he was obsessed with Rick James, and I was obsessed with Rick James, and Julian was as well. And we were sort of thinking, we were doing a fishing thing, and it was like, well, it could be a big fish in the water, it could be a, mer- a, you know, a mermaid. And we thought, a merman's quite interesting. And then we sort of thought, we need a, it needs something, a twist. And then when we thought it'd be great if he's like Rick James or ODB or something, or Little Richard, <laughs> and he's sort of a funky merman, and he's got the funk in his cave. But then when we came up with the idea that I don't know how we did, but we were writing it in the British Library, actually. When we came up with the idea that he would go, he'd get upset and go, you know, because we like our monsters to be sympathetic. You know, we like them to, you to feel sorry for them rather than them just be one dimensional. So when he gets upset and goes, you don't know me. You don't know what I got. I got a mangina. We laughed at that for about a year, me and Judith. And everyone we ever told laughed at it. And we thought, we've got some gold here. How are we going to wrap a show around this? We have some gold here. You don't know me. You don't know what I got. And then when we thought light comes out of his vagina, we were done. We were done. We went, this is the greatest thing we've ever written. We were arguing over who was going to play old Greg. It was like, ah, we knew. But we just thought, well, it's a simple story. Vince and Howard trying to get out of going to a gig. And then, you know, because they've done a bad... They're trying to get out of town because they've done a really bad gig. So then they go to this creepy place. It's a bit like um, American Wealth in London. Mm -hmm. There's all fishermen in there. And there's always a legend of a big fish, you know. And then Howard thinks he's going to catch it, but he's terrible. Vince is really good at fishing. Howard gets taken by old Greg, who loves him. (laughs) I mean, really what's funny about that is because Julian's such a good comic actor, it's sort of... He's he's quite a coward in those sketches, and he he's sort of there's an amazing bit where old Greg goes, "What do you think of me?" <laughs> and Julian just goes, "I don't know." <laughs> and he goes, 
And he goes, I'm, I'm don't know, sir. And he goes, make an assessment. And he goes, I think you're a nice modern gentleman because <laughs> he's just trying not to get killed. Doesn't but, know what to but say. Julian's so brilliant at being in those situations, playing himself against like a freak. And I was always good at playing a freak. And I think that was what was good about our double act, you know. Um, and he can do it. We can change it. You know, he's the crack fox. is Julian, you know. So we sort of swapped to, to keep it interesting for us. But, um, yeah, it was really... Uh, old Greg, you felt sorry for him because he just wanted love, really. And we always <laughs> tried to make our characters a little bit uh, pathetic, but in a way that you would feel emotionally something for them they weren't just scary monsters they were like oh he's just lonely you know um and by the end howard was he's going do you love me and i was like no i don't i don't even really know you it's like stop saying that. <laughs> and then he makes the turn yeah. again when he sees the fisherman up on the thing i think i've missed like he just it's such a subtle turn yeah, i know but he's it's like a, i guess it was before fritzel because it was quite old it's like an underwater fritzel you know but it was that whole idea of the kidnapping scenario and how we were sort of exploring that and thinking, I guess there probably is a bit where someone's been kidnapped and for years they're scared and then suddenly they just go, look, I don't really care anymore. You're just getting on my nerves now. It's like, I don't care what you do. You just didn't, you know, and the idea of the kidnapper being absolutely shocked by this because it's kind of like a status thing the kidnapper's got all the status but then once you go i don't care then they don't have any status anymore well that and that's it's ironically what we were just talking about with your brother it's like yes that the, the ego is the kidnapper yes. and as soon as you go i don't care anymore yeah. then it doesn't matter exactly and that will be what happens with trump and when people go well, we don't care <laughs> we're not gonna vote for look you. at me what? Uh, 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 and he starts to melt on stage like the the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just like, uh, uh, and he sort of yeah. There's a hatch in his hair that opens up, and there's a small <laughs> creature controlling him, like in Doctor Who. We'll be back. It wasn't him. It was me all along. You've never have you been on a Doctor Who episode? No, I wish. Oh my god! <laughs> Every year they have a shortlist for the new Doctor, or whenever they, they. I'm always on that list, but they've never contacted me. So you I, would be uh, in. Amazing doctor. <laughs> Other than you know, it's weird because I get excited. They go, "This is the top. This is the shortlist for Doctor Who," and I am on it. And people ring me and go, "You're going to be Doctor Who," and then they never contact me. So I, 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 I never, assume... I never thought about it until just now. You'd be an amazing doctor. But even Julian would be a good doctor, and I could be his dizzy assistant. Nah, I mean, fuck it's Julian. It's all about you. Yeah, fuck Julian. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to old Greg. <laughs> That's what's got to happen. It's got to happen. Just old Greg as the doctor <laughs> with a sonic, just fucking his mangina with a sonic screwdriver. I don't know. What else would he do? Yeah, the flashing TARDIS <laughs> is his light. <laughs> be amazing. I know. We're going to, I mean, me and June have just started. We sort of had a big break and then we, we never weren't friends. We were always carried on being friends. We lived just down the road from each other. So it's quite funny because we live in the same street. Um, so we see each other all the time. And we've just recently started thinking, we should write something again, you know? So hopefully this year we're going to have a crack at something. No idea what. Just don't want to even, we're just going to see what happens. Yeah. We, yeah, we might write a modern dance piece. You don't know. If it, but it, it, Nobody it, knows. We might write some, you know, some facts. It just series. has to be interesting and funny to you, and that's it. Yeah, I think maybe it's always that thing. I, there's a Jack White song about trying to get back to the point when you first start and you're in your bedroom making music, and then you get 
sort of famous and then you're always trying to get back to that point where you were just in your bedroom doing it for fun and no one knew who you were and I think that's probably true like when you get you play the O2 and you have a TV show really creatively you always just want to get back to that point where it was two of you in a room you had no desk I mean we used to write on <laughs> Julian had this really big bed a massive bed it was so big it was ridiculous and he had not a very big room so it was almost like <laughs> to the edge of the <laughs> he basically just put in another floor <laughs> but we used to sit on that bed and try and write our first ever show make each other laugh for hours and eventually always fall asleep because his bed was so comfortable <laughs> and just be, his friends his housemates would just look in and we'd both be on the bed asleep and they'd think what is going on there <laughs> I mean this is two people and we hadn't done anything at that point so it was just I was five six years younger than Julian and all his housemates were the same age as him from the same college as him so really what was happening in their eyes was Julian was phoning up some boy who was six years younger than him taking him to his bed <laughs> laughing for four hours and then they were both falling asleep <laughs> then I used to go see you guys and they'd be like who is that <laughs> That's my comedy partner. <laughs> we're doing a show. We're yeah, right. making a show. Making a show in yeah. a bed. Uh, well, we're making a show in a bed. We're making. We're writing a show, not for. Uh, uh, Another. It's like stand-ups like that, though. When I lived in London, you know, there's all these people, and uh, Julian said the same. There's all these people in the house. They don't really know you, like your flatmates in London. And if you do stand-up, you go out about ten o'clock at night, and it'd be cold, and you put your hat and your big coat on, and you'd either come back elated. Or you'd come back quite depressed. So basically, to them, you're a serial killer. And, and if where's they ever he fa- been? Because you wouldn't tell. You don't want to tell people because you don't want them to know that you're doing comedy. Because at first, you're not very good at it, and you don't want people there. You just it's like a secret. So you just leave the house, and then when they go, "Where have you been?" You go nowhere, and you're either really elated because it's gone well, yeah. or you're really depressed. And I think they just think this guy's going out and killing people. And if they ever found like your comedy notebook with a lot of like half baked thoughts, they'd think you were fucking it. crazy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, there's a light that comes out of his vagina. <laughs> what is that? Light out of the vagina? Who the fuck is Greg? A merman? Just, like, they, they, they I'm calling the you. police. They would commit you. I, I've always okay, I used to think that if anyone found a, a standard comedy notebook in a hotel room, that it, if you were in the wrong town, that could be evidence. Like, this person's crazy. This person is crazy. This is all the proof you need. In his own handwriting. <laughs> These weird drawings. This is not right. <laughs> These horrible sketches of men made of fruit. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I know it's horrible. So what do you? How do you? How are you sort of balance like you know painting and and stand up and performance and music and everything? I love painting and I went to art school, but I love. I, I do do an exhibition every now and then, but I kind of. Um, I don't want it to get too serious. Like when I've comedy's quite hard work and it's quite uh, it's a lot it's long hours and it's it becomes quite stressful when you can't quite get it right. So it becomes like a a job, you know, not a job, but it becomes like a no, it's not a job. It's an obsession mm-hmm. to get it right. And I kind of love painting because it's sort of meditation for me almost. It's like a place I go to where I just relax. So I never really wanted it to get like the comedy did I didn't want to ruin it I like to just do it when I feel like it and it be relaxing for me and I know that if I when I have an exhibition it's not because I'm like I've got to do 40 paintings oh (laughs) god and it's like it becomes a job again and that sort of defeats the object for me so I do occasionally have exhibitions but I I prefer to just put any drawings and 
artwork and animations and things into the shows that I'm doing, you know? And I think maybe because I think visually, you know, I would always want to see what old Greg looked like and draw old Greg. And this, I've got sketches of early old Gregs where he's more like Little Richard and stuff like that. <laughs> I look at them occasionally. I mean, even when we did a radio show, I used to paint characters and Julian would go, you do know this is going on the radio, right? You know, they can't see <laughs> this guy. And I'm like, yeah, but it's for me. I need to know what they look like. Otherwise, I can't quite believe they're real and then I can't be them. Do you know, like the Hitcher, I had to believe... I had to see what he looked like, you know. Yeah. And also, when it's not quite right, you sent old Greg. It was funny, actually, because we did a whole day's filming and I, I had like a sort of big sort of prosthetic piece of skin over my face with sort of like a frog, more like a frog, like an amphibian with gills. It just didn't feel funny. It was really good. It looked like a kind of amazing special effect, but it, it wasn't funny. And then yeah. I sort of said, I'm really sorry, but I don't think this is old Greg. And they were like, what do you mean? We've done a day's filming. This is old Greg. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't know. So I had to, we need a new I had Greg. to stay there with the costume makeup designer. And we sat there till like, and just drank tequila and sat there and, and just painted lots of different things. And then she painted my face and we stayed till three in the morning. And I got him and it was very simple. It was just, the, you know, it was more like a, a fish. It was like a red eye a sort of dark eye, you know, red lips, the moustache. It was more like Rick James, you know, and it was more simple. And it was funnier somehow. There was something funny about it. And I went, we've got it! And then we had to reshoot all of the stuff, and the executive producer was furious. <laughs> but in the end, it was worth it, you know. I got in a lot of trouble for that, but I just didn't feel... It wasn't feeling right visually for me, so I couldn't perform it right, which is strange, isn't it? I guess it's a kind of Lon Chaney thing, you know, where he would make characters and use curtain rings to open his eyes up when he's playing Phantom of the Opera. And if he didn't feel like he was the character, then maybe he couldn't act like the character. Yeah, well, and it, because if you don't believe it, the Yourself. audience is going to believe it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you have to... Did, does it, did it pretty much edit together the way that you had mapped it out or did you like how much how <laughs> yeah. much of your sketches and stuff do you sort of do you yeah. shoot a bunch of stuff and go oh, we'll find it. or was it, no. is it pretty well yeah there was always sort of vague you know stories there was always like how and vince do a gig they you know they have to get out of town they meet these fishermen they go how gets kidnapped uh no uh, vince is gonna get Naboo and Bolo to come, they've got submarines, so he'll, we'll come and rescue Howard, you know. And there's a kind of Cape Fear ending where we're leaving on a, uh, in the van, you know. And we've sort of also got the funk, we stole the funk off old Greg, so our <laughs> band is now funky, because me and Julian would have the alien, arguments. The tit alien. Well, I'd say, you're the least funky person I know. <laughs> and he'd go, who are you, Denzel Washington? <laughs> Like, listen, you've got no funk, and he'd be really angry. Okay, you're the whitest man ever. But we'd have arguments about who was funkier. But uh, I mean, at the end, we had the funk. It was a thing. It was like a that Bootsy Collins had and had lost. That Parliament and Funkadelic had kicked overboard from the mothership, Mm -hmm. and then old Greg had got it. And so, really, even though Howard got kidnapped, we got the funk out of it, and then we did a really funky gig at the end. So, we always tried to have enough of a story that you could harness those things on and then improvise a bit while we were doing it. I was a bit freaked out by old Greg episode because it was filmed quite dark. It was quite dark when we filmed it and you can lighten stuff in the grade, but not that much. And when I watched The Rushes, it was really dark and I thought that we'd blown it. I was like, it's too dark, you can't see it. And the director was like, it's fine, we can lighten it, we can lighten it. I was like, not that much. And I was really panicking because I thought this is too dark because it was making it a bit more sinister than it needed to be. It was funny because once we lightened it in the grade, it became more Willy Wonka dark rather than, you know, absolute 
horrifying horror dark, which wasn't quite what we were going for, you know? Yeah. And you, how did you guys how did you guys meet Rich Vulture? <laughs> Rich Vulture, who is the funniest person I've he's ever amazing. met in my entire life. In real life, though, you know, like he's very he's like trying to handcuff lightning, trying to get a Vulture <laughs> funny on screen. Is he's always good, but you know, he, the stuff he does in real life is just devastating. Like he will make everyone laugh. You're just crying and you can't laugh anymore, and you have to make him stop because he's just brilliant. Because he's an improviser, because he's in Chicago and all that scene, you know, like the Upright Citizens yeah. Brigade or whatever it is, um, Second City, that kind of thing. So he came from that background, and he was like, you know, he never blocks. He just goes with you on anything. And we were on the same sketch show. Julian was doing a sketch show with him called Unnatural Acts for Paramount Comedy Channel. And Julian got me in just to do the zookeepers sketch where we would just chat as two zookeepers. And that was the only thing I did in it. Um, and that was the start of the bush, really. Um, and Fulcher was in it, and I used to just get on with him. I, don't know, I just was drawn to his madness. And uh, I remember once... Uh, we were sitting there and he had a polystyrene cup and he broke a little bit off and just handed it to me and went, this is my wife. And then I took it and started kissing it and he went mental. I went, that's come on, not at me, at the tiny piece of polystyrene. He was like, what are you doing? And he was like, and he put it in his ear and he's going, get in my ear. And then all day I would try and look in his ear and he'd go, you're looking at my wife. And it was like a running joke that we had. And I said to Julian, that guy's so funny. And he went, I know, we've got to do something with him, right? And then Sean Cullen was also in that show. Oh, yeah. I know. From Corky and the yeah. Juice. And he was just so brilliant. And he was really sort of flying at that point as well. He'd been doing it longer than us, you know. I was quite new. I think I was at school at that point. And Rich <laughs> had been doing it a while. But Cullen was the kind of king. So they said, those two were doing stuff together. And me and Julian were. And we said, why don't we just, the two double acts, do a show in Edinburgh? And it was like, yeah, we're going to do a show, the four of us. It'll be amazing. We'll make a crazy show. Um... And then Sean couldn't do it. He had to drop out for some reason. And then me and Julian just carried on writing our show. And we got a call from Rich going, can I still be in the show <laughs> even though Sean's not doing it? And I we went, yeah, all right. But we were thinking, well, how's that going to work? And he said, I can't like come until a day before Edinburgh. And then we went, okay, well, we'll write it and we'll just send you stuff, and then you do whatever you want. So we wrote him as a kind of villain of the show, like Bob Fossil. He was the owner of a zoo, and he sort of sucked. Sucked me through, and Jim threw his eyes into a magic forest. It was quite an abstract show that. Uh, he kidnapped Vince, pretending to be David Bowie, and he did the worst David Bowie impression <laughs> in the universe, which we loved, because it was so bad. And he used to just go, Vince, and do this weird voice that was not like David. And I remember one line that he always used to say, I'm standing on a lozenge. And I always used to laugh. And for about now, for years when I saw David Bowie, I'd just think of, I'm standing on a lozenge. And I don't know where that came from. But he was so good in it because he just used to come on like a boot, you know, a, a big blast of energy. And we were so mumbly in English and kind of, you know, doing these intricate dialogues. And then he'd come in big and brash and kind of worked. So we thought, we did a radio show and we flew him over. We used all the money we made on the radio show to fly him over. And then we put him up. He just slept on our floors and on our sofas. And he never left. He stayed for about three months. And then we wrote the next show. And it was just cemented, really. And then we thought, if we get a TV show, you're in. And then we did. And he, yeah. And then we just did the whole thing with him. But he was so brilliant to have around he's an amazing energy he never blocks and he's really got full of ideas but he's also he never gets down or depressed so he keeps everyone kind of 
up, you know. That's a real art. Especially on tour when people are hungover and tired and fed up, you know, and he's always funny. So he would get into his Bob Fossil tight blue safari suit. And if the show's at eight, he'd get into that at five. And he'd just start drinking vodka and he'd be in his suit, <laughs> dance, <laughs> dancing, <laughs> shouting at people. And like, it was just like watching someone who was insane. Like he couldn't wait for the show to happen. Like even on, eight, you've done 80 gigs and you're like, oh, we've got to do this show again. And he'd be like, I'm already in my outfit. <laughs> like a child. <laughs> like his whole reason for being alive was to do this show, which I loved. He's amazing. So yeah, he's a great, and he's also a lovely man, so... You know, when he's a good friend as well. We never fell out or anything. It is that <clears throat> it's the same kind of recurring theme of never, that sort of childlike no. to, to just sort of making yourself happy. Yeah, and I never fell out with him, never, not in 10 years. Once, on the start of the second Bush tour, the big one, but the show wasn't quite there. Me and Julian were quite stressed out because we didn't quite have enough time to write it, and it sold out like a year in advance so the pressure was massive we were like oh my god we've got to write a show in, written one word and it's sold out and we're doing arenas and we were freaking out anyway we sort of got half of it written and then three quarters but the ending wasn't quite working and I'd been really stressing about it because I knew it was these massive venues and I was like we have to get this done and we were trying various things it just wasn't working and there was the tension was insane I mean Julian had a massive fight on the the night before, I think, the first show, because obviously we were just both really stressed out. And I kicked curry out of Julian. He had, we ordered a takeaway curry, and I kicked it. This is the only time I've ever been violent, probably. I kicked it out of Julian's hand, and it went all over Rich Fortune. And all he said, he's such a lovely man, all he said was, oh, man, that's not cool. <laughs> That was it. That's the angriest I've ever seen Rich. And I was like... I've never seen him this way. Oh, man, that's not cool. <laughs> what a beautiful man. And that was it. And then we got the ending and the show was good. But that's that's the closest. You, get the, you got the ending the day before the show or the day of the show? Oh, we were writing the show on that... Uh, we were writing our, our double act for bit because well, we used to come out and do sort of 10, 15 minutes of double act stuff sort of classic straight double act stuff at the beginning so we'd come out say hello and we'd do this sort of intricate dialogue you know all of our stuff stemmed from these dialogues that we did you know and then and uh we were writing it before we were going on on the day of the first gig i remember sitting there's footage of us i'm sitting on the floor writing and we could do that bit and we could do that bit and you know that thing we should do that joke there you know and julian's wandering around pacing around looking and you know getting ready and we're still writing it Skin of our teeth, that was. But it was only because we got so busy that we just were losing time to write it. It was like, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to have this book ready, you've got to do this festival, you've got this acting job. And the time to write it was getting smaller and smaller. And I was really panicking about that. And Julian was going, we'll be fine. That's the classic double act. I was having a heart attack. (laughs) I actually left my house once and just walked and didn't know when I was coming back. I'm just going to walk and see what happens because I need to run away. I was basically running away. I didn't realise. But Julian was like, yeah, I'll be fine. And I was having, having kittens going, I'm having a heart attack. But we just finished it by the skin of our teeth and it sort of worked out. But it, for me, it was the fear of all of those people going, oh, that wasn't as good as the last show. <laughs> do you sure. know what I mean? And it was like, Ugh! Which is why I think maybe I try and do too much maybe in my life. I try and do sketch and songs and, and characters and story and stand-up and animation and, you know, because I think I'm always trying to put on a good show for people, like a big show, because they've paid, and I think, try and make this the best show ever. 
as many things about it, but it'd be probably also it's probably also gratifying to, yeah. be able to work in that many different areas rather yeah. than just having it just be one thing. Well, I think they appreciate it as well because you know they just appreciate how much work's gone into something and they know they can sense it, you know. Yeah, and also because we leave it quite lo-fi and sloppy, so and sort of on purpose, you know, so it's quite sort of. Uh, it looks like we're making bits of it up and it's quite loose, you know, but I think then we have bits where it's really tight and then people go, oh, right, yeah. They have, it's just a little bit like wrong-footing people. You have a loose dialogue and then, boom, a big visual and a good song, you know, and they're like, oh, right, they know what they're doing. These guys know what they're doing. <laughs> we try and make it look like we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Most of the time we don't, but no, we do, really. How was the Sydney Opera House? That was uh, That was quite funny because... I I hadn't done much stuff in Australia, and the bush is massive there. It's probably bigger than it is in England, so it was insane. So we'd never really been there. So when I got to the opera house, most of the audience were dressed as characters from either luxury comedy or the bush. So it was quite a funny setting to see everyone in the Sydney Opera House, which is such a grand venue, dressed as people such as the Plan Pony, who featured in the bush for four seconds <laughs> or, or a piece of French toast <laughs> or it was just like it was so funny because it was like who's let these people in <laughs> it's like they've been at the dressing up box I read about the toast the French toast the French toast yeah that I read that you didn't recognize what that person was and yeah. you and they kept denying you yeah. because they were in character yeah and then you finally <laughs> like oh like that's such a great moment in the show well i did a character in luxury like a jack brell type character whose head was made of croissants and sort of pan <laughs> chocolate and he sort of just <laughs> kept saying to a piece of french toast do you he's singing a song and he kept saying do you love me and the toast would sort of pop up on the plate and go no and then go back down and then he'd sing another verse and go do you love me no, and it was like so. When this person just had the French toast as a head, I was going, "What are you? Are you this or are you do that?" And it, no, and I still wasn't getting it, and it went on for ages because we had another character in one of our early shows called Mister Jiffy, which was like a Jiffy bag, like a postman's envelope, big envelope. It looked like that, and I thought it was Mister Jiffy, this monster. I was going, "Is it Mister Jiffy?" No. <laughs> the rest of the audience knew. It was just one of those things where you go blank and then you go, of course, yeah. I wasn't expecting someone to dress as that piece of French toast that appears in the show for four seconds. Because in your, in, your, in your mind, like, you did that and forgot about it. Yeah. But everyone else, like, they've watched it, it a thousand times. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, old Greg or the Crackbox where there's, like, 50 people dressed like that. I mean, it's quite an obscure reference. Yeah, I'm going to dress as... And there was another drawing I did of a of the plan pony where we didn't have a plan to do this thing and I went why don't we ask the plan pony and I'd done a drawing of a pony <laughs> and we animated it talking and someone had come as that drawing of the plan pony and for you I was going what, who are, what are you and I'm going I'm the plan pony I was like, the plan pony was in it for five seconds. I know, but it's so great if you're a fan That's of something. Dedication. It is dedication. And I love also... my fans because they're the craziest and they're obsessive and they dress up. They're amazing. Yeah. I, I still, I wish, listen, when Capaldi decides, hey, I'm good. <laughs> I don't need to do this anymore. I'm done. You know, before before he, I, I just, I can't believe I never thought of it because it, there's a real sort of, Colin Baker esque thing about just like your yeah. your aesthetic yeah. would be such a great change. But before Capaldi got hired, when I knew Matt was going to leave, 
I said, you know, I think Richard Iowati would make a great doctor. I think he would be great. I think Iowati would be great as well. I love Iowati. Oh, all right now. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> sounds so... All right, Rich, how's it going? Oh, not great. I haven't tied... Oh, my shoelaces have come undone. <laughs> he sounds like he's going to kill himself, but he's amazing. But actually, what's funny about Rich Iowati is he never drinks, ever. And once, when we were filming Travel Man, he got a little bit drunk, and he was so funny. Because I've never seen him drunk, and I've known him for 20 years. And he got a bit drunk, and he was just telling me... He was doing impressions of Orson Welles. I mean, you can imagine, he's a director. He thought that was hilarious, because obviously he's talking about... He's doing impressions of Bergman. <laughs> I'm like, this is quite... quite this is quite... <laughs> Quite a niche. <laughs> I wouldn't open with this at the comedy store. <laughs> but he was absolutely amazing when he was drunk, and I love him. I mean, the IT crowd was really good fun because it was filmed in front of an audience, and because we had history, and he was in the bush, and I was in Garth, and we knew each other for years, we were just improvising and improvising. And Graham eventually, Graham Linehan, who wrote Father Ted, would come yeah. up because he was directing IT crowd and go, that's it's great, it's great what you're doing, it's great. Can you do the lines now? <laughs> not going to get home till like three in the morning. <laughs> but it was that we'd always just make each other laugh. So I'd love to do something more with him. He's oh, amazing. yeah. I, I think I read something. He said, well, I don't see why the Bush couldn't do a crossover with Garth Marenghi's yeah. Dark Play. Like, why couldn't that be? A, like, that, I think that would be. And have a bonus and a sort of bonus cameo from Flight of the Concours. It'd be amazing. Oh, my God. There's no reason you like couldn't do that. A mashup. There's be no so reason good. you couldn't do that. I know. I'd love to do that. I love the flight. I'm really gutted about because Flight of the Congress started around about the same time as us and we were really excited about them what they were doing and they liked us and their BBC radio show they yeah. had a BBC radio show and they had a BBC, ra- BBC radio show and they wanted me to play a dance instructor and I was so excited and then I went on tour with Bush I couldn't do it and then when they did the David Bowie episode they wanted me to be David Bowie and I couldn't I was like this is the dream job I've been asked to be on Flight of the Congress A and play David Bowie in a dream and I was jumping up and down and then I finished jumping up and down and my agent went Unfortunately, on that day, you're in the IT crowd and we've already signed the contract. No, it just crumbled (laughs) and dissolved. Jermaine ended up playing him, right? They did it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, which I think, in hindsight, was the best move because they both did it brilliantly. But because I love their stuff and because I love Bowie, for me, it was the dream job. I don't see any reason. So, listen, if anyone, uh, any entertainment blogs, any British (laughs) entertainment blog, just say it's happening. Just say it's happening and maybe everyone will be like, I guess we agreed to this. (laughs) And the Doctor Who job, if you could And the Doctor Who job, I think, uh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, And if you ever dressed up as a piece of French toast in the Sydney Opera House, can I just say for the record, you're a freak. (laughs) No. That's it. You can't do it anymore. Now that's the end. <laughs> no. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> that was so funny. Thank you so Of course. Much. Thank you so much. I mean... Wonderful. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars... Maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.